At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Hello and welcome back to Agrac. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a great show for you today. I'm excited to have back a very famous, long-standing visitor to the show, but who hasn't been on in a while. And it's a double. We also have for you a brand new first timer, both of them working together uh, to put on a fantastic show today. So we've got Dr. Mike Hofkamp, who, as frequent listeners will know, is the director of obstetric anesthesia at Scott and White Medical Center Temple and a clinical associate professor of anesthesiology at Texas A&M Health Science Center College of Medicine. Mike's been on a bunch of shows, done some really great work, and I'm glad he's finally back. I've been trying to get him back for a while now. And then we have joining us for the first time, someone I'm really excited to have with us, Emily Sharp, who is the program director for the OB Anesthesia Fellowship and an assistant professor of anesthesiology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So both of you, welcome to the show. Thank you. So really interesting topic that you two have been working on and we are going to talk about today, which is inadequate analgesia for cesarean delivery. And this is something I bet a lot of listeners just, it hadn't even occurred to them. This was an issue. Certainly people who don't do a lot of OB like me, uh, not something I would ever have even thought was an issue, but really interested to hear from you about this. So um, why don't we start uh, Mike with you and just tell us a little bit about why are we talking about this? How do we even know it's an issue and, and what are we talking about? Thank you, Jed. Uh, thanks for having us on the show. When I was a resident at Hopkins from 2005 to 2008, uh, I started to learn how to do obstetric anesthesia. And it astonished me about how we were taught to never put people to sleep for C-sections. And so the message I received was, you put this patient to sleep, you are really risking their lives. And as a resident, when you got a million things coming at you at once, uh, you just kind of take what your attending says and you go with it. And it was very um, it was very unpleasant to see some of these women extremely uncomfortable during cesarean deliveries. And there was really kind of a binary outcome. It's either 
there was general anesthesia or you avoided general anesthesia. And it didn't really matter how you avoided general anesthesia, just as long as you avoided it. And so as I became an attending, I had a little bit more time and space to think about why I was taught to do things this way. And what really, to give you kind of a historical account, Joy Hawkins, who actually was the valedictorian of the Texas A&M Charter Medical School class 40 years ago, she was a younger faculty member in the 90s and looked at data from the 80s and found that from 1985 to 1990, the relative risk of dying in a C-section was about 17 times for general anesthesia versus regional anesthesia. And this sent shockwaves through the anesthesia community. Overnight, the anesthesia community said, you know what, we can't do general anesthesia for cesarean delivery anymore. And so um, if you, you see there would be a, a race to the bottom as far as who can have the lowest general anesthesia rate. Brigham and Women's reported a general anesthesia rate for cesarean delivery of less than 1% from 2000 to 2005. And that's just astonishing that you can go to a tertiary academic medical center and have a C-section rate or general anesthesia of less than 1%. What wasn't reported was the use of anesthetic adjuncts that got them there. Like how much ketamine are you using? How much propofol are you using? And this stuff matters. And so there were follow-up studies like the, the SCORE study which was done by D'Angelo using SOAP data, there was over 200,000 cesarean deliveries and they reported a general anesthesia rate of about 5.6%. Similarly, um, Rick Dutton used his NACOR data and from the ASA, it was again, it was about 200,000 cesarean deliveries and reported a cesarean delivery rate for general anesthesia about 5.8%. And then interestingly enough, at the University of Pennsylvania, which is also an academic medical center, uh, they reported that obstetric anesthesiologists had a lower rate of general anesthesia compared to generalists. So it was about 7% for obstetric anesthesiologists. So that means people are fellowship trained or have specific uh, work expertise in obstetric anesthesia versus 12% for the the generalists. But interestingly enough, in this study, that, that difference went away when you looked at just weekend and after-hour cases. So when you say, all right, this is the weekends, after hours, you're doing urgent, emergent cases, there's really no difference between specializations. It's just these cases are tougher, and you're going to have a higher rate of general anesthesia. And so um, what happened is that um, I figured, you know what, someone should be reporting data on the use of anesthetic adjuncts. So I had a summer student in 2019, and we looked at data from a community hospital in our system from 2014 to 2018. And this approximated, I think, more of the everyday obstetric anesthesia practice. And we found that in this community center, community, or community hospital, there was a 5.6% rate for general anesthesia and um, a 17.8% rate for using anesthetic adjuncts. So this means that, you know, 
it used to be a binary outcome. It's either it's general anesthesia or it's not. But there's this kind of middle outcome of, you know, general anesthesia wasn't performed, but anesthetic adjuncts were necessary. And so we, we reported for about 1,800 patients that 17.8% of them needed some kind of uh, anesthetic adjuncts such as intravenous fentanyl, intravenous ketamine, held nitrous oxide. And Mike, and then, let me ask you. Um, sure. So it, it seems like, it, you know, maybe, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like if the story were simple, it would be, okay, Joy's group finds that uh, general anesthesia for C-section is more dangerous than regional anesthesia. So everybody just does regional and end of story. We're better off because we're, we have this lower mortality rate. But what you're saying is it's not that simple because if you have to use a ton of adjuvants to prevent general anesthesia, to supplement your regional, then maybe there's risk associated with that, that we need to take into account. Is that right? Absolutely. Not, not only just risk and patient safety, but just long-term harm to the patient psychologically. And I'll let, I'll let uh, Dr. Sharp uh, go into that a little bit more later, but um, another study showed that uh, the, the uh, Davis investigators looked at um, all cesarean deliveries in a year and 17% of patients had adjuvants, uh, IV anesthetics or nitrous oxide with a 7% general anesthesia rate. And um, of the people who had um, adjuvants, 58% received dexamethamine alone or in combo with other medicines uh, while 42% received fentanyl, midazolam, ketamine, nitrous oxide, propofol, or a combination thereof. And then most recently, we were at can the... I, uh, oh, I'm can sorry, I say please. Time? Yeah, so I mean, the interesting thing about this study um, that was uh, done by our group here at Mayo is that we actually demonstrated that dexmedetomy is a good adjuvant to utilize um, to help with... Um, you know, intraoperative pain during C-section. So most people usually use, I was just orienting residents today and we talked about the common things people use, right? Fentanyl, midazolam, ketamine, nitrous are usually the most commonly used. Um, however, we have really had a lot of great success using dexmedetomidine. And so that was one of the reasons why we wanted to get this study published out in the data um, because there is some increased use of dexmedetomidine in the OB population for C-sections, but really much a lower doses for shivering, um, but we've had great success, not only for shivering, but also for patients who are having a little bit intraoperative pain. Um, it works well because you get some pain treatment, but you get a little bit of anxiolysis, and it, we don't have to worry about concerns of patients not remembering their C-section. So I think it's a really nice um, medication that people should keep in their back pocket for if they do have a patient that's having pain during C-section. Great. And Emily, let me ask you, what dose are you using uh, for those patients? Yeah. So typically if you're, it kind of depends on the indication. So I did mention shivering. So I should mention the dose that I use for a patient who does encounter shivering for a C-section. I typically, we, we have a four mic per mil, uh, uh, vial. And so we have that. And so I used to use five to 10 mics when I was diluting out myself. Now I usually use four to eight mics. Um, and that usually is enough to abate the shivering. Now As for a, a patient. 
As a bolus, yes. Um, and not given slowly. So most patients tolerate that quite well. Um, for a patient who's having pain um, due to inadequate anesthesia for their C-section, I do use a larger dose for that. And typically, um, depending on the size of the patient, but I would say our average patient, I usually will start with about uh, 15 to 20 mics. And then I can adjust my pain or my dose there. Ideally, it would be to maybe use a dexmedetomine infusion, but the time that it takes to order that from pharmacy, um, we're discouraged from making our own um, drips. So I just kind of do a poor man's infusion. And if it's working well for the patient, then, you know, I'll maybe rebolus 10 mics at a time as needed. But sometimes you really just need a little bit to take the edge off. Yeah. Okay. That's great. And do you do, do you do any prophylactic treatment for potential bradycardia or no, you just treat it if it happens? We treat it as we, as it happens. So we actually did um, look at um, the hemodynamic effects in our study and uh, hypotension was no different between the groups, but there were patients that uh, did have a drop in heart rate, um, but none required treatment for that. Right. All right. That's really interesting. So Mike, you were going to um, talk about, I think, some some data from SOAP as the most recent data. Yeah. So there are a couple studies at SOAP, including one of mine that talked about abstr- uh, the adjuvant rates. And so Ruth Landau from Columbia, along with um, the lead author, Kim, described a 0.2% rate for general anesthetics for cesarean delivery, which is pretty low. But she also reported a 23.5% overall adjuvant rate. And so if, but she separated that out between non-intrapartum versus intrapartum, because when someone comes in for an elective C-section or they come in for an urgent C-section and they haven't labored, you're able to give a spinal anesthetic. Usually you don't have to worry about activating a labor epidural catheter. And so her adjuvement rate for non-intrapartum was 20% versus 29.6% for intrapartum. And then for my hospital, our, uh, our uh, general anesthesia rate for uh, C-sections was 13.7%. And this was during uh, the COVID time. And so I, th- I believe that a lot of these C-sections our general anesthesia were either they were already intubated because they had COVID or there were urgent indications related to COVID. And we had an 18.7% overall adjuvant rate. Now, when we looked at the data for elective C-sections, our general anesthesia rate was less than 1%, which is in line with, with guidelines. I think that our general anesthesia rate is, is higher because we um, our tertiary center and we get some sick patients and I think that we have a, a liberal attitude towards treating inadequate uh, analgesia during cesarean delivery. Like we, I would much rather induce general anesthesia than have to give ketamine, propofol, inhaled nitrous oxide. All right. So basically what we've discovered here or what you've discussed is that while GA rates are really low, use of adjuvants, that's, those rates are quite high. And so I guess the, the obvious question then is, is that a problem? If we knew, for example, that using these adjuvants had no negative effect at all on the fetus or the mother, then we would not care. But I'm guessing since we're actually doing this podcast that there's probably some reason that we think this at least might not be a great idea. So Emily, let's turn to you and talk a little bit about whether uh, you know the use of these adjuvants indicates that these patients are having pain 
presumably that's one of the reasons you would use them. And if so, how do we know if that's being adequately treated? Yeah, and that's, I think, the really important thing is how are our patients doing? How are they tolerating the, um, the their experience for their C-section? And what are they going to walk away from and remember when they look back on their C-section? So there was an interesting uh, study that was um, published in the European uh, Journal of Pain back in 2021, um, done by um, multiple investigators from different um, you know, there were a few investigators, but they mostly were from Israel. And they looked at the incidence, risk factors, and physician perception of intraoperative pain during cesarean delivery. So they reported that out of the almost 200 parturians with which they surveyed, the incidence of intraoperative pain was 11.9%. So 12% of women who were undergoing a C-section. And these were women who are having elective C-sections under spinal anesthesia. Okay. So these are the patients who we usually think are going to do really well. And, you know, cause we know that patients who have an intrapartum C-section under a labor epidural tend to have a higher problem with pain, but these are women who we think are, you know, we're getting the best anesthetic are going to do really well. 12%, almost 12%. Um, we're reporting this incidence of intraoperative pain, which I think is higher than I anticipated it to be. But the thing that really concerned me about this study as I read it was that the anesthesiologists and the obstetricians who were uh, assessed were unable to actually accurately identify a patient's pain during surgery. And I think that's a huge lesson to us as physicians that we either we aren't looking for it or not asking the right questions for women who are having pain. Yeah, that's striking. And so let me ask you, do we know what was happening? Was it that the spinal was wearing off, so the pain was coming toward the end, or was it never working that well in the first place and the pain was throughout, or do we not know the answer to that? It looks like they just asked them overall, um, you know, like on a zero, no pain to 10 greatest pain imaginable scale, um, whether they had intraoperative pain. Okay. So and sounds they were like- asking the PACU. So. It was not not specific to when, just did you have it? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So that's what we had kind of presumed. All right. So, all right. So that's that's study, uh, at, as you said, mostly out of Israel, found 11.9% had had at some point during their C-section some pain. And as you said, pretty concerning was that the uh, physicians, both anesthesiologists and obstetricians, were not able to accurately identify the pain uh, as it was happening. So definitely worrisome. What else do we know uh, that's going on here? So uh, Mike and I uh, recently uh, published a study together where we looked at a um, predictors of intraoperative pain during C-section. So uh, the primary aim of this study was to determine what demographics, clinical variables about patients predict um, patients who are going to have intraoperative pain during their C-section under neuraxial anesthesia. Um, and so when we looked at patients who did and did not report pain, we noticed that there was a difference in height, a difference in their intrathecal hyperpivacaine dose, and also the time from incision to wound closure. So we know that duration of surgery, as well as maybe inadequate anesthesia from um, their bupivacaine, um, definitely may relate to intraoperative pain. But in this study, overall, 22% of patients reported, um, you know, on a one to five scale are um, like we reported between one to five on a 
um, out of seven scale uh, that they were having satisfaction with pain control, meaning that they actually were not completely satisfied with their pain control. That sounds really backwards. So let me say it that you know only 88% of patients were highly satisfied with their pain control during C-section. So the 22% were not satisfied with their um, pain control during C-section. Uh, yeah, and that's striking, right? Because you know, and I want to draw the the um, difference here because I think a lot of times we think postoperatively from you know general surgery, of course, you know we always tell patients like you can't expect to have no pain, right? But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about in the middle of the surgery. This would kind of be the equivalent of a patient waking up from general anesthesia from an X lap and saying, you know, I wasn't satisfied with my pain control during the procedure, right? I mean. <laughs> They're supposed to have no sensation during this C-section. That's kind of the whole point. And yet, clearly, that's this is what's really shocking about this is we're clearly not meeting that because, as you said, a large percentage, almost 23%, didn't have good satisfaction with their pain control during, right? This is not talking about post-op. This is during the C-section, right? This is during the C-section. So the question is, I mean, we tell women they're not going to have pain. So is that, I mean, is that what we're providing them? I don't know if it is, or we're requiring additional medications to provide, to allow that to happen. Right. Now you said uh, it. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. I just want to add one more thing to that study. Um, when we did the multivariate analysis, we found that when we controlled for all the things that were different, the only thing that was an independent predictor of whether or not a patient was going to have pain was the length of the surgery. And so at my place, we're pretty quick. So the mean uh, incision to wound closure time was 50 minutes for the no pain group and 60 minutes for the pain group. And so, you know, 10 minutes, is that really gonna make a difference in a spinal wearing off? Probably not. I think that there are things there that are not able to be measured. I think that the length of surgery also serves as a proxy for the complexity and challenge and the, the, how challenging it was for the obstetricians Perhaps it meant more manipulation, uh, a rougher handling of the patient. So, so yeah, so our study, when we control for all those things, it was only the only thing that was independently predicting pain was the t time from incision to wound closure. Great. So, you know, it, it, it's interesting, right? Because though you said that 10 minutes isn't huge, Maybe there's something more there. And certainly, I mean, 60 minutes still strikes me for an academic medical center is pretty quick for a C-section. So it may well be that, you know, the more you look at, especially at, at non, um, at places that are doing teaching and maybe taking a little longer, that it may be that some of this is the, the spinal wearing off. I also wonder if there's anything about dosage, like, you know, is, are people afraid of a high spinal? So they're not giving quite as much. Uh, and that may be contributing uh, too. Any thoughts on that? Or do we have any way of knowing that or no? Emily, what do you think? Well, yeah, I, I definitely think that can contribute if we're giving inadequate doses. I can't speak to the dosing that um, that Mike does at his his group, but we we never go be below one point six uh, mLs of three quarter percent hyperbaric bupivacaine or twelve milligrams. Um, but many of my partners will go up to one point eight routinely, and then if we're expecting a longer duration, whether it's a multiple C sections or doing a concurrent tubal ligation, um, we typically will increase our dose. So I definitely think that that um, 
the, the dose is, is important. And we need to make sure that we know our surgeons, we know the duration of surgery because what I use in, in Minnesota for, you know, with my surgeons who aren't as quick as, um, as Mike's is gonna be different than what Mike needs to use versus, you know, like a purely private practice there, or they can do their C-section in 20 minutes. Right. Interesting. All right. Emily, any other data you wanted to share, uh, in terms of, um, what we know about pain during, uh, during C-section? Yeah, there's one other um, additional study that I wanted to share that was published this year in the journal Anesthesia, um, who uh, was done with uh, Dr. Patel with Pervez Sultan as the senior author. And they did a really interesting systematic review of 54 randomized controlled trials, which had a total of almost 3,500 patients. And they looked at um, the prevalence of inadequate neuraxial anesthesia in patients undergoing elective, elective C-sections again, is what we're talking about. And they found a prevalence of supplemental analgesia or anesthesia was almost 15%. So they had 14.6% with a 95% confidence interval of 133 to 15.9%. So a pretty tight 95% confidence interval. And um, so, I mean, this clearly um, shows that there are a lot of patients um, who are, you know, are having inadequate anesthesia and requiring supplemental um, medications. And it's something I think that we aren't always talking about. Um, but I mean, this is multiple studies um, kind of showing very similar numbers that we're seeing from the previous studies we discussed. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's then turn to what we can do about this. What do you recommend uh, for providers who are th hearing this and thinking, yikes, I don't want my patients to have pain during their C-sections. So what can I do differently? So the first thing that I want to talk about is that we are not advocating for routine conversion to general anesthesia. So we, it really is great for women to be able to have uh, their C-section under neuraxial anesthesia. We know that is um, the best for outcomes. We're able to, you know, provide long-acting pain control with our neuraxial opioids, and women do really well. They allow allows them for time for bonding, be able to do skin to skin in the operating room, and um, women do really well. But I think it's really important for us to think about ways that we can either prevent conversion to general anesthesia or even prevent um, the situation where women would need to have, um, you know, additional medication. So um, one of the things that we need to think about, and I kind of alluded to this a little bit with your previous question is, you know, like what is the duration of the C-section? So um, if you work in an institution like mine where some of the C-sections take a little bit longer, maybe don't do a single injection spinal. Maybe you need to consider a combined spinal epidural um, for patients who are maybe obese or having, multiple, you know, on their like fourth C-section or having, you know, a salpingectomy uh, for sterilization. The other thing, if you don't want to do a CSC, you can consider use of adjuvants. So um, we know that epinephrine and clonidine can be added to your single injection spinal to extend the duration of that. Um, there's other things that we can do. So we know that um, when a surgeon exteriorizes the uterus, that can increase intraoperative pain as well as intraoperative nausea and vomiting, post-op nausea and vomiting, and post-op pain. And so the practice at my institution is routine uterine exteriorization, um, but that doesn't always need to be done. And so sometimes if I have concerns about an epidural or a spinal that I'm dealing with, I often will talk to the surgeon, hey, you know, do you think we can avoid exteriorization for this patient? 
or if it happens and that's when the patient has the pain, you know, we ask, hey, can we do an inside to repair for this? And we know that from the literature, there's a lot of data to show safety in using inside to repair rather than exteriorization in terms of blood loss and, um, and obstetric outcomes. So that's um, some other options. And then um, for a patient who, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about um, elective C-sections, planned C-sections under kind of a spinal anesthesia, but a lot of C-sections we actually do are patients who are having an epidural um, for labor that end up with an intrapartum unplanned C-section. And these often are the patients who are a little bit more tricky that actually really require um, some additional management. And so I think the biggest, most important thing that I try to stress to the residents that, and fellows that I work with is meticulous management of your labor epidural catheters. You can't just be a, a needle jockey and place an epidural, you know, once that epidural is, and we have to make sure that the epidural works for the woman. You know, if her dilute local anesthetic solution is not going to be adequate for her labor analgesia, I'm really concerned that it's going to not be adequate for her surgical anesthesia if she goes for that C-section. And so, um, you know, I always say I'm not trying to, get, to make sure everyone goes for C-section, but I do treat every epidural like it could potentially go for surgical um, anesthesia. And so, you know, making sure that we um, are, you know, making sure that we are not just bolusing over and over again and um, thinking about replacing epidurals that don't seem to be working adequately. Great. That's really helpful. Let me ask you, um, you mentioned epinephrine and clonidine. Um and again, everyone should, of course, as always, uh, check with your local hospital and protocols before, um, you know, doing anything that you haven't done before. But um, Emily, what's your practice? If you're going to add epinephrine, how much do you add? Stay with us. We'll be right back with more on this topic. Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, we're back. And Dr. Sharp is going to talk to us about adjuvants like epinephrine and clonidine. So I do epinephrine a whole lot more often than I use clonidine. So um, I have a lot more familiarity with that. And I actually, the dosing that I use off of my epinephrine is based off of a study by Dan Katz, where he did a randomized controlled trial of um, epine adding epinephrine. And he randomized to three different groups. He did um, a no epinephrine group, a low dose epinephrine group, which he defined as 100 mics of epinephrine, and then a 200 mic epinephrine group. And then he looked at, um, you know, 
basically the duration of anesthesia and found that that 200 mic epinephrine group definitely prolonged the duration of the sensory blockade much um, more than that low dose or that 100 mic group, whereas, you know, statistically uh, speaking, there wasn't much difference between the no epi and the low epi group. However, I do have colleagues here that I work with um, that add, they, they use a routine dose of 100 mics and they have a lot of great success with that. So based off of the CAT study though, I typically use 200 mics, but I know many people who will use 50 or 100 mics. Okay. Now I thought that, uh, and of course it doesn't mean it's not able to be used, but I was under the impression that clonidine had a black box warning for this use. Is that true? And if so, you're saying that despite that, uh, like other things like droperidol, it, it probably still can be used just carefully. Is that the deal? So the black box warning, I, I am terrible when it comes to history of anesthesia. So Mike, if you know better, please uh, speak up. But um, I think it's more so in like neuraxial for epidural use, um, not so much for intrathecal use. If I'm, if um, if I'm remembering correctly, um, and so I was talking about it more with the intrathecal use to prolong the sensory block and motor block, which you know um, has been shown to be able to uh, prolong your motor block for almost up to an hour. Wow. Um, but I do think that it is considered off-label. Um, you know, even for intrathecal use, but I'm, I don't know about that. I have terrible memory about that black box, yeah. but I do, I have, you know, a couple times used, um, epidural clonidine for patients who have an epidural that I feel like they have good levels, but we're just having difficulty controlling their pain. Um, but that's very, um, rare and unusual, but I will do that. I know that Ruthie Landau, um, up at, uh, Columbia, she uses, uh, clonidine regularly. Um, I think both intrathecal and epidural, but of course you would have to talk to her, but I've heard her talk about it before and she's had a lot of great success with clonidine and, um, they use it, um, quite a lot in her practice. Yeah. And we, you know, when I was a resident, uh, we would use clonidine and epidurals, not all the time, but certainly it was an option and it, it, we had very good success with it. Mike, how about you? Do you ever do that? And, and do you know anything about the the potential? I could even be wrong about the black box warning. I'm not sure. Do you know, Mike? No, there, there is a black box warning. I just. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm not, uh, I, I don't recall why it has a, a black box warning. I typically don't use clonidine, um, I don't really use epinephrine because our surgeons are usually pretty quick. And if I'm concerned about the length of a surgery, I'll put a CSC in. I think one adjuvant for spinal or epidural that's very important is fentanyl. And so it's amazing that in the academic centers, everybody uses fentanyl. It's kind of a foregone conclusion. I did a study, a retrospective review at a same community hospital that I did the other study on in my system. And we found that only 22% of, of patients got intrathecal fentanyl for cesarean delivery. And it was, it was striking that that practice hadn't filtered out to the community hospital, even in my big system. And so I, I wonder how often intrathecal fentanyl is being used in the community for obstetric anesthesia. And so I was using 10 mics. I saw a good uh, systematic review that advocated for uh, a larger dose. And now we're using 15 mics and we're going to, um, we're going to uh, study that and see what kind of effect it had. The, um, so I, I think in, in intrathecal fentanyl is, I think is always a good idea for spinal anesthetics, whether you're using a C-section a tubal ligation, a cerclage, 
or, or anything that involves interaxial. Yeah, right. that's, I should have mentioned intrathecal fentanyl. I always often just think of that's like the routine, um, like spinal recipe, right? And I mean, I shouldn't assume that, but because if we do, you know, the 12 milligrams of hyperbaric fucidicane, 15 mics of fentanyl, then 150 mics of morphine, but everyone adjusts that a little bit. And you're right. It is always interesting that people choose not to use that fentanyl. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so definitely useful. And Emily, it looks like you found the black box warning there. It does seem to be for um, for epidural use, though it does say that sometimes the benefits may outweigh the risks, and it is for hypotension um, or bradycardia. So certainly, you know, possible to use. Don't use it just based on hearing us talk about it. Uh, talk to your, uh, if you're a trainee listening, talk to your attending. If you're a, a faculty member or an attending in practice, uh, you know, make sure you run it by your, your uh, pharmacy committee before... Uh, taking any new, new, new attempts with it, but certainly it is something worth talking about. Um, okay. So lots of great adjuvants, um, that can be, and we should distinguish of course, between what we're what we just were talking about, which are adjuvants added to the spinal dose versus what we were talking about before, which are adjuvants given IV, right? Because they're very different here. We're talking about things that are mostly going to be contained to the intrathecal space versus things that are going syst systemically. So what we'd like is to give things intrathecally and not need to use things intravenously. Um, so let's say, though, that, uh, you know, we're, we're trying. And uh, despite the fact that we have, you know, given a souped up spinal, it's just not working. The patient's having pain. What is the right move there? Do we want to try giving, you know, some, maybe some dexmedetomidine, maybe some IV fentanyl, maybe some ketamine, you know, do we want to go down that route or do we want to convert to general anesthesia and how do we make that decision? So I think the most important thing that we do is we talk to the patient and get them involved in their decision. And so I always uh, teach my residents the very first thing that we do, I have a patient that's having pain and I tell her, okay. I'm going to do X, Y, Z, whether, you know, if it's a patient with an epidural, I'm going to give you more medicine in your epidural, and then I'm going to try something IV. But I always let them know from the beginning, if at any point you're having, your pain is too much and you want to go off to sleep with a general anesthetic, then that's what our plan is going to be. And that's going to be the best thing that may be the best thing for you. So I don't use that as my last part of my discussion, but actually as she's first telling me she's having pain, I tell her that I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this but we can go off to sleep with the general. Most women will say, no, let's try these things. I really like to stay awake. And so we do that. But I do think it's important that women know that they have the option for a general anesthetic and that it's not like this extreme out there like we can never do. Because I want women to feel comfortable like speaking up like, no, this pain is too much. Like I really am uncomfortable and I don't want them to feel like they have to like really work through it. So communication with the patient, I think is the very first thing. And then... Um, you know, sometimes, so that's what I do, you know, so if we do have an epidural in place, I will redose the local anesthetic for the epidural, make sure that epidural fentanyl was given because sometimes um, different trainees may have forgotten to give that. And then I will, um, like I, I said, my bias is using dexmedetomidine, um, given, you know, patients hemodynamics, um, but, you know, other people just use what you're comfortable with, whether it is the fentanyl or ketamine or nitrous. Um, you know, there's the question about whether you should be giving midazolam for a patient having C-section. And it's not, um, I can't say I've never given it, but I do 
give pause and I think about it before I give midazolam because I have had patients who um, I've seen after their um, their prior section, they're like, I don't know what I got last time, but I didn't remember anything for my C-section. And you look and they did get, um, they did get midazolam. And, you know, one of the benefits of being an OB anesthesiologist, we get to care for women at the time of their C-section and the delivery of their baby. And this is a huge momentous occasion in their life. And if we use midazolam and take away that memory, it's really a bummer. However, if you have a patient who is having a lot of pain and you are concerned that maybe there might be even like traumatic, like a traumatic experience, then there may be an indication for that. But before I give uh, midazolam, I really do like to give pause and really think about what the indica- um, what what could happen from that. Um, but so say we, you know, we don't see epidural, just doesn't seem to be working well. You've talked to the surgeon, you know, either they can't, um, you know, prepare the uterus in situ or their patient's still having significant pain. You know, the IV adjuncts that we've given don't seem to work. Then, you know, I think that it's very reasonable to convert to a general anesthetic. And whether we do that early or late, you know, and maybe the patient didn't want to try the different IV adjuncts that were having so much pain that they would just prefer to go off to sleep. And I think that's okay. And I think we have to normalize, like, no, we shouldn't just be willy nilly doing general anesthesia. We really should advocate for women to be awake. But if a patient's having significant pain, then we should also um, provide compassionate anesthesia for her. And what do you say, you know, to the provider who says, wait a minute, you know, I read Joy Hawkins study 17 times mortality. I mean, how, what are you talking about? Right. I mean, why, why I don't, I don't want a 17 times mortality. I mean, what do we, that was a long time ago. So do we think that's changed that by putting someone off to sleep, we're not really subjecting them to such an increased risk of mortality. How do you address that? That's a great question. I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I do think that things have changed. So we have a lot of, um, so one of the things I really get concerned about, and I think that every anesthesiologist should be away, uh, afraid of, is the obstetric airway. We know that pregnant women are at increased risk for difficult airway. And a lot of times these are unanticipated difficult intubations. So seven to 10 times higher risk of difficult intubation compared to the general population. So that definitely was part of the contributors. And one of the things that we know now is that we have a lot of great airway adjuncts. So we all have video laryngoscopes and other um, adjuncts that really can help us um, either prevent or help us out if we encounter a difficult airway. Um, And so that is, is, I think, one of the biggest things that has changed. Now, some people use that as a backup, but if I do a general anesthetic in a pregnant patient, my first look is always going to be my best look. And so I use as a baseline, a video laryngoscope. We have uh, light scopes in our institution, but it, you know, use what you're comfortable with and what you're best at. Um, but for me, I don't DL pregnant women. So I get enough practice of that in the main OR and I always want my best look to be my first look. Right. Okay. So the bottom line is probably a lot of that excess mortality had to do with the airway. And we're talking about, I believe, 1990 or in the 90s. So we're talking about 30 years ago. And um, the bottom line is at that point, uh, they just didn't have the technology we have now. So probably it's safer than it was. And though we don't want to just willy nilly do general anesthesia for all C-sections, having a rate of you know 0.2% it probably means that there's a fair amount of patients who are having some pain during their C-section, maybe a significant amount of pain, or are getting enough adjuncts that you may be putting them at risk anyway. And so there's probably a sweet spot in there where some people who are not getting converted to GA probably would do better to get converted. And I love, Emily, your point about involve the patient. 
right? I mean, let them be part of that discussion. Are you having a lot of pain? Do you want to go off to sleep? That seems like, you know, a really important part of this puzzle. Um, well, and you also have to ask, how are people defining general anesthesia, right? Because I think a lot of times when we look at these studies, the general anesthesia is defined as a presence of an airway. But we definitely know that with enough adjuncts, um, patients are under a general anesthetic just without an airway. And so is that really safer? Um, you know? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so, all right, let's, let's talk about the future. What, um, needs to be looked at? What, what is coming down the road here? What do you guys think studies need to be done? Um, and how does practice need to change? I think that the, um, the management of an intrapartum unscheduled cesarean delivery, I think that there are lots of, uh, opportunities there. Um, I think that epidural catheters for labor should be meticulously managed and they should be optimized. But I think that um, I think there's compelling evidence out there that we should be considering pulling these epidurals and doing low dose CSEs in the, for unplanned intrapartum cesarean deliveries to improve the experience for the patient and, um, and for the surgeons too. And so I'd say about 40, 45% of the time at my institution, when we have an indwelling labor epidural catheter, if we've got the time, like if it's a non-emergent indication for cesarean delivery, I'll just pull the catheter and I will do a low-dose CSE. And the anecdotal evidence I have from the surgeons, they say, you know, this surgical field is a lot better than when you dose it up with, uh, with lidocaine. We use 2% lidocaine and fentanyl. That's our standard go-to for dosing up an epidural. And they say that when we pull the epidurals and do a low-dose CSE, it's like as if the patient walked in off the street and they're doing an elective C-section. And so, uh, in fact, Emily and I have a abstract that's going to be presented at the ASA. We can't really go into specifics because the, the data is embargoed, but um, we do have compelling evidence to... Uh, suggest that, that that practice works. So, Great. That'll be really interesting to see. What about future studies? What do you think needs to be done? So I think it's important for us to actually evaluate what the impact of uh, is on women who are having inadequate anesthesia during their C-section. So number one, you know, when we are reporting general anesthesia rate, I think that people should also be reporting their adjuvant rate alongside their general anesthesia rate. So if you are reporting your 0.2%, you know, show us that you also are using, you know, 20, you know, 20 plus percent adjuvants with that. So that really, you know, kind of puts that into perspective what that 0.2% shows. Um, and so I think that is something that we, you know, should be reported. I think that we should, um, you know, do a little bit more study on women, you know, so if you're having intraoperative pain, you know, how does that relate to problems with uh, mood disorders, postpartum depression? Um, there's been a lot of studies that have looked at postpartum depression and, you know, whether, they, you know, having an epidural for labor analgesia, but, you know, what is the impact of our anesthetic technique and the experience during a C-section? I also think that we need to really evaluate, um, you know, and follow women who have a C-section, whether we convert to general or just use adjuvants, we should follow with them, um, not just the day after um, the C-section, like our usual practices, but follow up long-term. You know, how are they, you know, what is their experience? What do they remember? Um, are they going to, was it traumatic? Are they going to come back to us in a couple of years 
with PTSD needing a repeat C-section, because we know that the majority of women who have a C-section are going to end up with a repeat C-section, you know, have they, were they traumatized by this experience? We've all take, you know, during, you know, whether during our anesthesia residency or, you know, as OB anesthesiologists, we've consulted on patients who have PTSD from pain during their C-section, you know, what can we do to improve that? But we also need to be following these women. And then there's a real push, um, for kind of um, within both OB and OB anesthesia about trauma-informed care. And a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, the high percentage of women that are sexually assaulted, um, you know, in their life. And then all of a sudden coming to this very vulnerable time in their life where, you know, what labor delivery is, is, you know, when women are at their most vulnerable. But I also think that we need to make sure that what we're doing in as anesthesiologists is that we're providing the best care for these women, um, whether it is, you know, doing uh, a spinal or giving sedation or a general anesthetic may be um, what is best for them. But so again, really getting the patient involved in what is um, going to be best for them. Awesome. All fantastic uh, ideas for future studies and for really the way we should be thinking about this. Um, anything either of you think we didn't cover that you want to add before we move on? No, I think we covered it all. Great. Well, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations, something you would share that the audience should check out uh, for fun. Um, Emily, let's start with you. Anything uh, you'd recommend? Well, I love to read and anyone that knows me knows I'm always will have my AirPods in listening to different books. And so a book that I just recently finished that I've been telling a lot of people about, um, not typically the kind of book that I re read, but my husband recommended to me. It's a book called What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. And it's written by Dr. Bruce D. Perry, who's an MD, PhD, and also co-written with Oprah. <laughs> hmm. And it's a fascinating book that really looks at why people are the way they are, not necessarily what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. Because a lot of the way that we are is a result of the things that has happened to us in our life. And I think it's an important book just to read as a human being, but also specifically as a physician when we are encountering maybe people that we refer to as difficult patients, um, really what has led up to their this point in their life that has contributed to them acting the way they're acting. Very cool. Great recommendation. Thanks. Mike, how about you? I'm a big golf fan, as I know you are too, Jed. And um, I recently read a, a book about Phil Mickelson, who is a famous professional golfer. And it's the unauthorized biography of Phil Mickelson. And I thought I knew who he was, but this book really paints a, a colorful picture of the man. And I, th I thought it was pretty balanced. It's by a, a golf writer named Alan Shipnuck. And what makes this book particularly relevant in this day and age is that there's this new breakaway golf tour sponsored by the Saudi royal family. And it's very controversial. Phil Mickelson was one of the early superstars that basically crossed the picket line and started playing for big exorbitant uh, Saudi Royal family money. And so I think this book provides a lot of context about the man and his decision-making. And one thing about the book that I, that I found really shocking was his gambling. I always thought his gambling is just like, yeah, he likes to gamble, you know, but really it's, it almost paints a compulsive gambling type picture. And I think it actually makes him more human and actually somewhat sympathetic. Uh, the reader will be somewhat sympathetic to Phil. And so I, I recommend the book, even for people who don't play golf. I think it's 
an interesting book about an interesting man. Awesome. That sounds great, Mike. Um, thanks. And yeah, a lot of interesting news lately about that new tour and, and kind of what's going on with it. Um, I will recommend uh, a TV show on HBO called Euphoria. Uh, and it is, uh, it's really good. It's incredibly well done. Zendaya is the the main um, star actress and she does an incredible job. Um, it deals with some really, really tough issues um, in terms of teenage drug use and sex and all kinds of stuff. And I will tell you that if you have kids, which I do, they're mine are not quite teenagers yet, but they're getting there. It's scary because you don't want your kids to do anything like what happens in this show, but it's really well done. The characters are, are fascinating and well-developed. It's, um, it's a really well-told story. So if you can separate it from your own kids, uh, I think you can enjoy it. So uh, it's um, Euphoria on HBO. All right. Well, that's great. Thank you both so much for the time for coming on the show. And uh, this has been a fascinating topic. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jed. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.